Our New Testament lesson is found in Colossians 3, reading verses 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word, we acknowledge that it comes to us as a gift from you. You have spoken and revealed yourself clearly to us. And so lead us into all truth by the power of your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you may open to Deuteronomy 5. We are in the third commandment, which is found in verse 11. And I'll give you pre-warning that we'll be all across the Scriptures today as we build out what it means not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We are continuing our series in the Ten Commandments, and we're exploring what it means to love God and to love our neighbor, that this is what the Ten Commandments is about. And for many of us, we don't know what to do with the Ten Commandments as somewhat a source of trepidation. What does it mean for us to follow and obey these laws, these rules that God has revealed to us? We find ourselves somewhat compelled to keep them, and yet we also find ourselves unable to keep them in an exacting way. We come up short of it. And so this leaves us in somewhat of an ambiguous place. And rather than delighting in God's law, it oftentimes becomes a source of drudgery for us. We don't exactly know what we are to do. And we do have to be very careful with the law of God. Some of you have heard me tell this story, but it bears repeating. When Melissa and I were married, I was purchasing gifts for my groomsmen. And I bought small Bibles and had things engraved on them. And then I was writing a personal note to each of them. And so I wrote to all my friends, and I would just write down a verse at the end of what I had written to them. And I would leave it to them to look it up, to find out what it said. When it came to my family members, I decided that I would write the note and then just put Deuteronomy 29.29. It's an awesome verse. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. This is the foundation of the Christian family, that God makes covenant with us and is faithful to us generation after generation. The problem was is that I put Deuteronomy 28.28 mistakenly. You have to be careful with the law of God because chapter 28 is actually the chapter of curses. (laughs) Chapter 29 is the blessings. And for disobedience, may the Lord smite you with blindness. (laughs) Came back from my honeymoon with several puzzled looks. My brother-in-law asked me exactly what I was doing. He didn't know if I was joking, and then I realized what I had done. Good to stay on your scripture memory. But this is how many people think of the law of God. They think it's just something out there to curse you. 
that is something that we're to perform in order to earn our way into God's presence. And I can't emphasize enough that this is a complete misunderstanding of why God has given us the law, that it's not for us to earn our way into heaven, that the law is given to us as a guide, that we have to remember the order of the Ten Commandments, that God gives us the law after stating that He saved us and redeemed us. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, therefore. And so the logic of the Bible and God's redemption of us is always grace preceding our gratitude. Grace initiates with us, and then we respond to that grace in the power of the Spirit, which is gracious itself. That we are not trying to earn anything when we talk about the law, but God is guiding us into the good life with Him and what it means to follow Him. And so He graciously gives us these things. When we come to the third commandment, it works very much the same way. In number six, there is a benediction given to Israel. It's the benediction that I use most every week with you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you His peace. And then in verse 27 in chapter 6, it says, By doing this, you will place my name upon my people. And this is the grace of God. God places His name upon us. He imprints it on us. We are His, singled out by Him. Not because of anything we do, but simply by His choice. It is His grace that initiates that. And then, because His name has been placed upon us, and we've been singled out for that, we are to reverence that name. It's the logic of grace and gratitude once again. And so this is where we find ourselves in the third commandment. And the largest question for us is, what does it mean for us to revere this command? What does it mean to respect the name of God? And there are four broad implications for us when we look at the whole of Scripture as what it means for us to respect and revere God's name. First is this, is that we avoid insincere worship. Now, it's important to understand that when we read these words, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That they are the subject of enormous controversy in the commentaries. How to actually translate them best into English. Typically, we tend to think that this just means you're not supposed to swear in God's name. Okay? That is true. We'll get there in just a moment. But there is also a broader reference here that we have to keep in mind. Because the word that we translate you shall not take, actually means lift up, carry, or bear, okay? And the idea of lifting up is always used in the Bible in concepts of worship, okay? And so there is some concept of not lifting up God's name in a vain or empty way. And when you look across the Old Testament as to how it builds out this commandment, the concept of worship is very closely associated with it. You find this particularly in Malachi chapter 1. You can turn there with me. It's the last book in the Old Testament, just to let you cheat. In Malachi 1, God is criticizing the priest. If you look in verse 6, it says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, 
Where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Again in verse 13. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? And so the concept that's playing out here in Malachi 1 is that the priests were bringing offerings that God had forbidden, that they were to take the best of the flock, bring that to the altar and make sacrifice. And rather, they were bringing that which was lame, and they were bringing that which was blind. Or they were taking that which was stolen, that was not of their property. And so they had the appearance of worshiping. But were they actually following the command of God? No. It was insincere. It was listless. It was half-hearted. And so they were lifting up the name of the Lord in appearance, but there was great hypocrisy just underneath. They were profaning the name of God is Malachi's charge against them. And friends, this is what we want to avoid. We want to avoid profaning God's name, making a mockery of it, half-heartedly, listlessly worshiping Him, going through motions. We want to engage Him. Now, obviously, as a pastor... I have a good many conversations with people about worship. There is a great number of styles and forms of worship, and people all have their choices and their predilections. And so it's not uncommon for a pastor to hear, well, I just am not able to worship well there. I can't engage with the worship there. And there are time to times where we need to evaluate worship. And we need to ask whether it is fully biblical. And it does, I would suggest, need to be more than just praise songs and a sermon. And that there is appropriate evaluation. But oftentimes, we only focus the evaluation on the quality of worship on external things. How is it going up front? And the third commandment begs us to engage personally, though. Not just evaluating what the church is doing in the worship service, but us asking the introspective question, in worship, am I entering in? Am I coming ready? Am I prepared to engage? Or am I coming half-heartedly? Am I coming listlessly? Am I coming in a lazy way? Friends, to bear the name of God, to lift it up and not in an empty way, means that we come ready to engage with Him, ready to meet with Him, trusting that His promise to be here among us is good and true, That when we hear His Word, we are hearing Him speak. When we pray to Him that His ears are open, that He is among us. When we come to His table by His Spirit, He ministers to us. We are to come fully believing that, trusting Him, expecting to meet with Him. And so this is what it is not to lift up the name of the Lord vainly. The second piece of this that the Bible builds out in terms of not lifting up the name of God in vain, is that we respect God's name in our lifestyle. 
That is, it goes past just our language. That this commandment also captures something about the whole of how we live and how we devote ourselves to God. If you turn with me to Leviticus 18. It's the third book in your Bible. Leviticus 18, verse 21. God instructs Israel, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And so there's instruction here about not not profaning the name of God. And the way that Israel was not to profane the name of God is they were not to give in to the practices of the surrounding nations and their idolatries. As hard as it may be for us to understand, the gods of several ancient religions from South America all the way through the Middle East to the, to the Eastern, uh, to the Far East, there were continued practices of child sacrifice. The child sacrifice was thought to appease the God to keep back his wrath. And so children were given over, and the God Molech required this as well. And we see here that this was to profane the name of God. And so Israel was to be unique, with a unique set of beliefs in a unique God who related to his people in different ways. They were not to give over their children to sacrifice. That this was to desecrate God's name. Rather, they were to honor their children, to raise them in the knowledge of the Lord, that they were the next generation. And so it was a completely different way of being. And what God was calling His people to was a unique and distinct way of life that didn't define itself by the culture around it and what was acceptable, but rather defined itself by obedience to God and listening carefully to His Word. And so not to bear the name of God in an empty way means that we have to be authentic disciples, submitted to Him, listening carefully to Him. And why is that? The Bible understands very clearly the logic of idolatry. In Psalm 115, which we read two weeks ago, in verse 8, it says, Those who make them, speaking of idols, become like them. That is, if we worship a God who requires child sacrifice, what the Bible reveals is that we will become like that God. We will end up emulating them. We will conform our ways to that God's ways. And that we'll become cruel and we'll become unjust. And rather, God wants to liberate us from those things. And this is why the law is never a bad thing in the Bible. That the law is a blueprint for what God's new humanity should and will look like. It is freeing us, rescuing us from the tyranny of such evil as sacrificing children. Because we can buy in very easily to the norms of the culture around us. And we have to listen carefully to what God reveals because He wants us to be a unique people. In the 18th century... In the Southern Presbyterian tradition, there's an awful and glaring example of this. That is that we had a God. It was somewhat of an ideal. It was a way of life. And that way of life that we held up involved the servitude of a certain class of people that we considered to be slaves and unworthy. 
And Southern Presbyterians were famous for giving in to that cultural norm in order to support the way of life that they wanted to live because without slavery, the system didn't work. And so there were massive theological treatises written to defend that. It's a shame on our tradition. It's still being repented of. It's being said that that was wrong. But it was bearing the name of God in vain. It was giving in to cultural standards that were acceptable and saying this is okay. That in the name of self-determination, in the name of our own personal freedoms, we were willing to use other to support our lifestyle. We gave in to the ways around us. Friends, this is what we have to be very careful not to do. Prizing God's Word above what is acceptable around us. Listening carefully to it. Respecting God's name by seeking to be authentic disciples and followers of Him. The third piece to bearing God's name is that we must respect God's reputation. If you turn to Leviticus 24, you find a very graphic story of a young man who got into a fight. He was the son of an Israelite mother and he cursed the name of God. He is then cut off from amongst the people because he was guilty of blasphemy. We don't know exactly what he said. We don't know exactly what he did, but my advice to you is don't do it. <laughs> but he failed in some major way to use God's name appropriately. He cursed God's name and the Bible reveals that God's name is not available to us in that way, that we're not to use it, that it's not trivial, that it's not light, that God's name reveals who God is, that the covenant name of God that we can best pronounce as Yahweh, we don't even know properly how to say it, reveals who God is. And the pages of Scripture unfold who He is as Creator, who He is as Redeemer, who He is as Consummator, the one who will return to make all things right. And so we are to respect that name because He is the one who's given us everything that we are to honor it. And He lays claim on obedience in our speech. Patrick Miller, a commentator, says this, It is by all the words and deeds associated with this name, Yahweh, that one shall know who and what God is and what God is like and what God does. And this is why we protect that name, because that name reveals. The name of God is not an abstract concept, that the name of God reveals who He is and what He has done and what He is like. And when swearing in the name of God, two things happen. The first is we take something sacred and we make it trivial. Our culture loves trivial things. We love to take sacred things and mock them at times. It's part of our humor. But it's not to be that way among us because of what God has done for us. Just like a grandfather that we respect or our mother, that we would honor their name and not appreciate someone using that name irreverently, so it is with God. We don't allow it to be given over to trivial purposes. The other thing that happens when we swear in the name of God is that we can call down God's transcendent power 
on another for our own purposes. We can curse them in the name of God, but it's actually very selfish. We have no right or regard to do so. And so we curse someone, we condemn them in God's name, and we're doing so for selfish ends. And that too is inappropriate. And God says that His name is not available to us in that way, that we are to lift it up in praise and thanksgiving and worship. As Paul writes in Colossians 3, we are to do everything in the name of Jesus. All the names of God are appropriated to Jesus in the New Testament. Everything in the name of Jesus. But we're not to curse and we're not to swear, we're not to abuse the name of God. And so we give respect for His reputation. I remember when I was in the third grade, I had a project due, and I'd been out with chicken pox, and I had a bad case. I got, a, I got it late. And uh, my project was on Houdini, and so we had built a box that was to mimic one of Houdini's magic tricks, and my box wasn't working. My magic box was failing, and so I was working with my mom and my sister to get my magic box to work because I had to do the trick in front of everyone, in front of the whole class, and I was afraid I was going to be made a fool of. And when it didn't work and I was exasperated, I cursed in the name of God. I'd seen it on TV. My mother looked at me, and I knew that I had made a mistake immediately. <laughs> and I was taught very quickly not to do that again. And uh, it was a very helpful lesson. But in being taught, I was also taught respect, that that wasn't appropriate. God's name is not available to you in that way. Don't abuse that, son. And so we need to be very careful to respect that. The fourth piece of bearing God's name in an honoring way is that we uphold truthful speech. In the Bible, we are commanded in multiple places to take oaths in the name of God. And that in calling upon God, we are giving a testimony that we plan and intend to make good on our vow, that our oath is good. Jesus has some interesting things to say about this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. And then once again in chapter 23, verses 16 through 22, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And sometimes people confuse this to think that Jesus is saying taking oaths is wrong, that taking oaths in the name of God is wrong. Jesus is actually critiquing a very um, insane process that had developed in Israel. They had begun swearing by the gold of the temple, or they had begun swearing by the table that was in the temple. And they thought, well, if I swear by the gold in the temple, I'm not as obligated to keep my oath. It was convenient. If you didn't swear by the name of God, then you weren't as liable. Okay? Can you imagine taking wedding vows that way? <laughs> Can you imagine the pastor standing up to take his ordination vows and to swear on something lesser so he's not as liable? <laughs> this is what was happening. And so Jesus critiques it. Because everyone knew when you swore by the name of God and you took an oath in God's name that you were then liable to keep that promise. And that that promise was then the thing that undergirded the entire community. That's why oath-taking is so important. Because it is an act of love and devotion to God. It's a vertical relationship, but it has massive horizontal consequences. And this is why in the Bible, love for God and love for neighbor are never far apart from one another. 
Because those vows that we take become the foundation for the community of people that surround them. When Melissa and I were first in seminary, during our first year, there was an avalanche of pastors who were caught in marital infidelity. We had been married just a year. And I remember our response to that. We didn't know what to say. Our seminary professors began to pound us about sexual purity and chastity and the importance for us to fulfill our marital vows in front of our congregations. We were all scared to death. And we were all having conversations with our wives. How do we avoid being burned down like this, making a mockery of ourselves? How do we avoid that? And many people began to say, well, there's just no hope. And wives were looking at husbands, and husbands were looking at wives saying, you know, can I trust you? And the bottom line is, is that we swore that. Yes, I'm completely capable of that. That is in me as a fallen and broken sinner. That could be done. But yet I've taken an oath, and that oath was serious, and it was sincere, that I would be faithful to my wife, that I would love her and honor her, that I'd be wholly hers and she would be wholly mine. And friends, if we don't operate with that kind of trust, if oaths are not serious, then we will live in a community that's full of suspicion and distrust. We will be cynical. We will be completely jaded. We'll not take anyone at their word. And that is a bad place to be. But God has another kind of community. Yes, oaths get broken at times, and there is grace found in God for that situation. But God intends to build a community where there is integrity, that yes is yes and no is no, and that we honor Him, and we seek to uphold the integrity of our oaths, and we don't have to live in suspicion of our spouse or our pastor or anyone else who enters into a vow with us that we can trust that they said yes. They'll make good on their claim. They've done so in the name of God. Friends, that is actually a gracious community. That's God's new kind of people that He's building where we don't tell lies and we don't mislead. Bearing the name of God is not a light thing. It is our privilege, though, It's our privilege because God has placed His name upon us. He is among us. He has singled us out for His blessing. When I was in the seventh grade, I went to a new school. It was a horrible year. I didn't have any friends. They transferred me from the county school to the city school. All these kids had grown up together, and now I was the newcomer. Baseball tryouts started that spring, and in my hometown, baseball was king. And so if you were going to fit in, guess what you had to play as a young boy? Baseball. So I went out for the team. I surprised myself how well I was playing. The issue was that left field had the sun shining on it at 4.30 to 5 in the afternoon, and no one could catch fly balls. I had figured out the trick, how to do it in the sun. So everybody was in center and right field, and there was one other eighth grader who was dumb enough to try out for left field. I had a great tryout. I was not expecting to make the team as the newcomer, but clearly I was making it. 
I couldn't believe it. I still remember the feeling of shagging some of those fly balls, catching them, running them down, throwing it in, giggling to myself. I'm doing so well. And then at the close of the tryout, they listed those who made the team, and I had made it. And the coach then announced, I have two alternates, and I have one jersey. Colson, Ebron, you get to work it out for the one jersey. And I was crushed. I was so much better than James Ebron. <laughs> I'd just been demonstrating that for three weeks. I was thinking, what happened? And so I got into the car after practice, after receiving that news, and I just broke down crying in front of my dad. I was just sobbing, so upset that I had not gotten the jersey that I was now going to have to continue to fight for it. And my dad can be very tender, and my dad can be very firm. It was one of those firm moments. And he said to me, he said, well, what are you going to do? Quit? <laughs> it didn't seem extremely helpful at the time, <laughs> but it was. He went on to tell me stories of adversity from his childhood, things that he had had to overcome. And he told me story after story, and in telling me those stories, he was telling me about what it meant to be a Colson. And he said, you don't quit. You overcome. You work through. You do your best. He was telling me about what it meant to bear my family name via my family story. It's a really important life lesson. And I went out and won that jersey because of what my dad said to me that day. But there's even a more important principle there because I don't just bear the name of Colson. That one's really not that important ultimately. I bear the name of God. And friends, we bear that name together. That name has been placed upon us. That name can frustrate us. We can grow discouraged, but we must always remember what a privilege it is and who we are, what God has done on our behalf, how he has set us apart, and then the responsibility and privilege and duty we have to bear that name well, not to lift it up in an empty way. And so we don't engage in insincere worship. We respect God's name in the way that we live. We respect God's reputation. We attempt to honor him with the use of his name. And we uphold truthful speech. We take honest oaths and vows. That's what it looks like for us. And it's a privilege for us to serve Jesus who's been given the name above all names, who shares in all the names and functions of God. That's who our God is for us. Let's revere him. Let's pray. Father, there are so many ways that we can fall short of lifting up your name in honoring ways. Forgive us for our many sins and help us by your Spirit May we find strength in you to lift up the name of the Lord in a good way. Give us grace. We need help. In Jesus' name, amen.